This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, the World Escape Room Championship, Buzzshot, and Patreon supporters like you. Buzzshot is customer satisfaction software for your escape room business. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, Morty, and more. Here's what Dawson McKay, CEO of Escape Alaska and a Buzzshot customer had to say. A branded digital team photo is one of the most valuable items you can offer guests as they leave. Having that social proof is fun for the group, whether they win or lose. Add to that a list of custom achievements your guests can earn while playing your room, and they are guaranteed to continue talking about your escape rooms long after the experience is over. Behind the scenes, we rely heavily on BuzzShot's robust internal stats to see how our rooms are performing and whether their difficulty levels need to be adjusted. Streamline your marketing and grow your business at buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. When booking your free trial to get 20% off your first three months. Details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Each episode this season, we will be interviewing escape room creators from different countries. Today's guest is from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We're joined by Alexander Gierholt, the co-founder and creative director of Logic Locks. He's best known for the incredible escape game, The Amsterdam Catacombs, but he has done a lot of wonderful things in the immersive world, some of which had a massive influence on what we do at Room Escape Artist, and we'll be exploring all of it. Welcome, Alexander. Excited to be here. So happy to have you. The note that you sent us at the end of last year (laughs) inspired the mailbag episode that we did and also played a role in inspiring this season of international guests. So thank you for that. I didn't know. That's exciting to hear. They loved the postcard. They were so excited. David really wanted to talk about it. And we were like, we should ask for more mail because this is really fun. <laughs> it seems to me it's a very uh, common tradition in the US to write Christmas cards, no? Because I actually got inspired by my American friends after I received some of theirs. So I was like, wow, this is so cool. We should start doing this as well. Yeah, it is a very common tradition here. And we've always done kind of end of year thank you cards we've sent out to people who have helped us out in all sorts of different ways. And yeah, it's just a nice tradition. It's a nice way to go and connect with people. A lot of times too nowadays, people will either send out like a photo card, so it'll be like a nice family photo, or people will send out a newsletter. It's a nice way of keeping up. I mean, we're all stalking each other on Facebook nowadays, <laughs> but it's it's still nice to get a little personalized letter. Yeah, love it. Okay, so let's start with your game, The Amsterdam Catacombs, which is a very immersive demonic experience that you built under an absolutely magnificent church. Yeah, if you come to play the catacombs, you will approach an authentic 1860s church and you will be um, invited in as a sort of assistant investigators. And you meet a character who is a very devious, mischievous, very eager 
scholar has get, gotten access to this place that uh, he uh, shouldn't have maybe had. He asked you to help him to figure out what happens in this space because he was uh, working there with assistance and everybody left him behind because no one felt this place is safe. And uh, he doesn't quite believe it, but he's also happy that he has some outside sources to help him with this. And uh, well, you're going to explore what we call it like the network of tunnels under the city of Amsterdam, which is... I guess it's not a spoiler to say there is no actual network of catacombs under the city of Amsterdam, but we like to pretend that this is the case. And uh, we designed this game to uh, simulate this. It feels very extensive when you're down there. You are literally in the church and you go downstairs like underneath the church in what feels like catacombs. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just basement of a church. <laughs> so it is basically a catacombs. Throughout the years, many different things have happened in this place. There's dead people buried all over the city. But yeah, it's not like the Paris catacombs, what you would imagine usually. Let's talk a little bit more about that church, because I know many of our American listeners must be wondering how you were allowed to build an escape game under a historic church, let alone a game exploring demons and the occult. <laughs> so can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. So the Netherlands, especially in the 50s and 60s, underwent an incredible transition with a period of very high secularization. You said a, a period of high secularization, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The church has lost a lot of influence over the years. And the Dutch are also very pragmatic. So they saw that there's a lot of prime real estate <laughs> that is not being used, even though it's also not really needed as churches. So they came up with all sorts of different ways these places could be used. So you find bookstores in churches, you find cafes and restaurants in churches, event spaces, etc. And the place where we uh, built the catacombs uh, used to be a party and event uh, location. As a matter of fact, like that was probably the, the reason why we got away with uh, doing what we were doing, because it was the lesser of uh, two evils, because uh, before there was a, a fetish club in this basement. A fetish club. Yes. And that was a bit too much even for the, for the people who are managing this building right now. Who does manage the building? Is it the, the government? The, the, the government owns it, but it's managed by a for-profit organization. So they were like, oops, we messed up. We rented it out to a fetish club, but we'll make it better by leasing it to an escape room company who's going to build a game featuring a demon yeah, <laughs> crawling well, around the, <laughs> the, under, well, the underbelly of this church. That's much better. Fortunately, didn't ask too many questions uh, when we started. <laughs> and we told them it would be spooky and on the side of horror. They were okay with that. Only then when eventually some of the higher people saw the game that we had built, People were a bit skeptical about what maybe uh, some of the neighbors might say. And uh, <laughs> I remember we had one or twice in the beginning uh, interviews with the press where they asked us to maybe not hang it out there so big what this game is actually about. But fortunately, so far, no one has complained. Everybody's quite uh, stoked about it. The other thing that I would say is worth noting for people, especially from the US who aren't familiar with this, is that across Europe, there's kind of a different relationship with historic buildings in general. There's so many of them, and there are, many of them are quite old. So they can't all be turned into museums. I've recently played a, a live action role-playing game in an old castle in Poland where we all pretend to be a wizard school. So those things happen too. Oh my God, that sounds like so much fun. Sherlock, also in Amsterdam, is in the old stock exchange building. Exactly. Yeah. They have a gorgeous location as well. 
Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed about many of the games in Amsterdam in particular is that escape room companies there have been able to take over and repurpose really gorgeous old historic buildings. And Alexander, when I recently was in Amsterdam, you and I went to go play Soup du Jour at Rock City Escapes, which is also in an old monastery, which houses an art school along with an escape room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big empty real estates that people don't know what to do with. Usually they don't have windows. They're not <laughs> the best in their ventilation. So you can't do like big events there. Yeah. Escape rooms are quite suitable for that. You guys have beautiful locations for your games there. You are so lucky. What is the origin story of Logic Locks? So Logic Locks started well many, many years ago. I think it's like eight years ago. I started it together with back then my ex-girlfriend and her brother which is a very interesting combination, which I would not recommend to anybody starting a business uh, nowadays. I have become a lot smarter. But as you can hear already from this combination, we didn't have a lot of business experience. We stumbled into this quite naively. I was studying here in Amsterdam. We met a friend of mine in Prague, and he was uh, showing us of uh, this thing that he built, yeah, which was uh, an escape room. And we were immediately hooked and thought, like, you can maybe do this as well. We went back to Amsterdam. We plundered the attic of my ex-girlfriend and her brother's father, who uh, was traveling a lot, collecting all sorts of things from many places. And yeah, fortunately, we were allowed to use almost everything. And around this, we constructed our story and we hustled a basement that you could use for, I think, 10 months for free to build. And with like just really like a handful of savings that we had and a lot of free time and a lot of curiosity about how to build stuff and how to uh, learn all sorts of skills. The three of us built our first game, The Secrets of Eliza's Heart. Yeah, yeah. That Oh my God, I love that game. I thought it was so much fun. Even now, after all these years, I think it still holds up, even though you can feel that it's not a ton of tech in there. But the puzzle flow in there was fun. The storyline was great, very immersive. And all the props, the set was gorgeous. Thanks to plundering like a grandfather's attic, which feels like the start of a, an adventure movie somehow. <laughs> yeah, a lot of love went into this game. And we were back then really obsessed with trying to get every prop as authentic as possible. I mean, like a lot of it has been broken by now, as it usually goes, because only then later we realized that building your game around a bunch of uh, unique, irreplaceable props isn't really the best <laughs> idea. You know, they're very exciting to have in the first place. So uh, yeah, we went in with all this like uh, sort of like very hobbyist enthusiasm and we were really very much positively surprised by how it was received. Like then there was no other games that we knew here in the city and we didn't know if people would, would like this. What year was that that you built that first game? I think it was eight years ago. So it was like 2014, 2015. That game was really impressive in its own unique way and really beautiful when you crafted it. And it still holds up as a result of that. The execution was just fantastic. But it is also a remarkably different experience from your second game, The Catacombs. How did Logic Locks go from producing Eliza's heart to something so big and so sprawling like Catacombs? What was that journey like? Mm. One thing that we always really cared about and that you can also see in Elizabeth is that we really cared about the storytelling and the scene. We were never interested in just building puzzle rooms. Straight from the beginning, we thought like this can be much more. So that's, I think, like a, a common thread. Both of these games care a lot about the story. And we have in between also built some other things that maybe are not as well known because they're not so accessible. We made one game that is a traveling freak show. That's a caravan. It's a 15 minutes escape room experience, which I think also has a very lovely little story, actually. 
And we were playing loads of games and we started to organize up the game, the Escape Room Convention. We were doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of people, getting lots of inspiration by this industry, which back then didn't exist like that. We were just excited and saw a lot of potential. And then we built this game together with a partner who uh, had much more knowledge in, in terms of tech. He brought in a lot of skills that we were missing. And again, what we did, we just put all the money in that we had saved up and again, did it like with a lot of personal time investment. I think it took us like over 10 months to build the game. Yeah, every day working in the catacombs. What made you decide to go horror? Some people get a bit creeped out by it, but maybe because they don't see it coming. Initially, I wasn't so excited about horror, but um, a friend of mine, he has put it quite well. He said like, what you want to do in games is you want to evoke emotions. And horror is just fantastic at doing that. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, the location screamed for it. We were like, we have this location, which is already scary by itself. If you don't use it for horror, we might not use it for its full potential. Did that game always have live actors in it from the beginning? I can answer that as yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of the earliest players. Yeah. We had a very different character that we were interacting with. We had a, uh, I believe, a nun when we were playing, not a dubious academic. Yeah, back then we had a nun and a priest as the main uh, characters, which we have changed over the years because it was really hard to train our staff to behave priestly <laughs> or to say clearly not to curse or to swear. <laughs> <laughs> So like now playing this character, they, they can lean into the banter that some of them are really good at and having a lot of fun with this. And also we noticed that players actually connect better to this character um, because towards the priest, there was a lot of suspicion and uh, <laughs> mistrust much more than to this guy, uh, surprisingly. Because basically the character who greets you is the one who's ostensibly helping you throughout the game and giving you hints, right? Yes, yes. So if it's like a creepy priest, you're naturally going to be suspicious of him and then now this is the guy that's supposed to be helping you through the game he didn't try to be creepy priest but uh, oh. <laughs> <Just a> <laughs> but like yeah when it comes to priests there's an interesting anecdote i can tell from this way so i studied psychology and one of my experiments that i did in my university was i had to measure embodied attitudes by how quickly people can react positively or negative to a certain stimuli and for this we had to measure the balance of certain words how people would react to them and we replicated a study from 25 years ago, and we took the same words, and we had to see that some of them change in their balance. And some words changed completely to the opposite. One word, for instance, was a clown, which oh. used to be a positive <laughs> word, and is now a negative word. And another one of those was priest. People used to see it very positive. Probably cops. <laughs> well, at least if you're American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cops is not as extreme here, but yeah, yeah. Has your academic work studying social psychology influenced the way you approach game design? My background as a psychologist has approached pretty much everything I do because it's like can't get rid of the knowledge anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and even though a lot of it has been proven uh, false by now, I don't know if you're aware of the replication crisis in psychology, but oh, yes. that's a whole I, different I, story. <laughs> I studied communication science, which has the same replication okay. issues. Yeah. Wait, can, I don't know. Can you guys describe what the replication crisis is for anyone who may not know? To put it simply, a lot of research doesn't hold up. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, if you were to run an experiment testing gravity, it's going to work consistently. If you run a lot of social science experiments multiple times, they operate a whole lot less consistently. That makes sense. And I feel like a lot of times it was probably a very small sample size in the past also. There were a lot of methodological problems in the field and all sorts of uh, 
gray areas of how to conduct research. Yeah, lots of sampling bias because a lot of the people who were being studied are all like freshmen in college. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. We're not the only ones who have gone global. In preparation for this episode, Morty's team has added tons of escape rooms and companies in the Netherlands. There are 240 companies covered in over 300 locations with 729 games. That's a lot of games and companies for a relatively small spot. But the Netherlands, as so many of you know, truly is a premium escape room market. I've been there three different times. I am constantly trying to figure out when I can get back there again because it is one of my favorite places to play escape rooms that I've found anywhere in the world. Yeah, and I just came back from the Netherlands and I totally used Morty to plan my trip. It made it easy to figure out on which day, which escape rooms I wanted to go to because it shows all of them in proximity to each other. And we knew we had to go play the dome. Of course, you have to play the dome when you're in the Netherlands. And I was able to discover Soup Du Jour and um, Bloody Mary and a couple other games that were in a nearby location that I had not even heard of before. So it was just so useful when planning my escape room trip. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. You mentioned Up the Game earlier, which you co-founded and served as programming manager from 2015 to 2018. And The conference in those years, for me, and I think for a lot of the community, those of us who were active at the time, it was magical. The people you brought together, the ideas that were shared, really, in my opinion, created what we now think of as the international escape room community. And what we have been striving to do with Recon is directly inspired by your work and the ethos of those early up the games, or at least our interpretation of them. I'm curious what your goals were with the conference back then. Wow, that's uh, very nice to hear. I don't know. I feel like I might be blushing uh, by you <laughs> saying this. Thanks a lot. Thanks for making such an amazing time. Well, before you answer that really quickly, can we talk about what is up the game because I've only heard of it from David mentioning it, but I don't really know what exactly up the game was. Up the game was our attempt to uh, create an event that brings people who were excited about creating escape rooms and other kind of related experiences, bring them together, inspire each other and teach each other and share. When we made our first escape room and we saw other escape rooms, we thought like, wow, this is just the beginning of a huge trend. And probably in a few years from now, there will be all sorts of ideas from video gaming and movies that people will try to translate into reality. I guess we were in one sense, maybe a bit naive because we thought this would all happen much faster. We didn't realize (laughs) that it would actually take 
much longer for the escape room industry itself to really establish it as a solid professional industry. We thought it's just going to be innovation after innovation. Yeah, we were young and we wanted to help facilitate this and bring those uh, people together. So we started already with the, it's crazy actually like the first convention there were already so many people speaking there who were not actually doing escape rooms yeah. but doing other kind of things people were very thrilled and excited to meet each other but also told us wow this was all great but i would have liked to uh, hear more about escape rooms we were thought like yeah yeah but this is already like this is going much further there's going to be much more than just escape rooms and also you have to understand there's not a culture of immersive theater here in the u.s you have already an immersive industry which here didn't exist we were like, this is going to be so much bigger than just escape rooms. But we also underestimated, of course, how many struggles you have as a starting escape room business, how many problems, all sorts of very tedious, boring, practical things that you run into on an everyday basis. Other people can help you with their knowledge very much. We were initially just focused on like the design of it and the games and more from a high level perspective. And then it became a bit more grounded. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there the first year, but after you had hosted year one, the few North Americans who were there all came back and were talking. And year two was when you had invited Lisa and I to speak. And we were really nervous and we didn't know much of anything about escape rooms in Europe. We didn't know how our message was going to land. We didn't know what pop culture references and what jokes we were writing into our presentation were going to land and be relevant. And I remember talking through all of this stuff with you and giving you our talk and you giving us feedback and helping us tailor it to that European audience. And that had meant so much to me and Lisa. It's hard to understate how important the care that you were putting into those talks and helping the speakers was because it really changed the quality of what was being produced for the better. Well, thanks. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's had an influence because I know David and Lisa spend a lot of time coaching their speakers as well. And even me, when I helped give a talk with them, they spent a lot of time with me practicing and it helped. It made me a lot less nervous. From everything I see, I see exactly that kind of care and passion in you guys. And I'm really thrilled to hear that, that I have helped to inspire this because it's so cool. Yeah. In a major way. Did you also force David to give his talk without notes? Because that's what David did to me in Las Vegas. <laughs> and I came in and I usually do everything, you know, with a set of like, I'm not reading the entire paragraph, but I've got like bullet points and he's like, no notes. And I almost died, but I made it work and I'm glad I did because it was a lot better. So thank you. <laughs> That was not Alexander. You were inducted into the David Spira method of public speaking, which is a blend of memorization and improvisation. Nice. That's how I like it. Yeah. I guess what I'd like to say is without Up the Game and the work you had done there, Recon doesn't exist. Neither does this podcast, which was sort of an offshoot of Recon, but also something that and I don't think we've talked about this before. But after Up the Game 2018, I recorded a pilot episode with Victor Van Dorn from Sherlock, also in Amsterdam. I didn't quite have everything figured out back then, but so much of what we're doing has roots in that. And that episode probably is recorded somewhere. I don't know. Maybe we'll cut it together and release it to patrons one day. 
Oh, that would be fun to listen to. If I can find it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even like the way we structure quite a bit of this podcast, it sounds like was inspired by some of the things you did at Up the Game. Because for example, this season four is all escape room creators. But the first three seasons, our guests are really varied. And even though we think of ourselves as an escape room podcast, we try to bring on creators of many diverse, immersive games and experiences. So we have people from LARPs. We have people who've made board games. We've had people who've made puzzle style app games. Or we've had people that have designed challenges on Survivor. So we also really tried to bring on different creators of different immersive experiences because I think escape rooms really blends all of that together, right? There's challenges, there's immersive acting and improv. There's definitely puzzles, but it's so many different things combined. I think that's part of really the challenge of escape rooms, why I respect the creators so much. And part of the reason probably why it hasn't taken off as much as it really should have is because it's so difficult to do. Yeah. Well, it's exactly the reason why this is also my favorite escape room podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So also where we already like giving a shout out, we didn't do this by ourselves, of course. We did this together with the organizers of uh, Prison Escape. Without them, it wouldn't have been in this gorgeous uh, location. And without their huge and dedicated team, we wouldn't have been able to do all the logistics and stuff. It was incredible the amount of work that they have done. The location of most of those early up the games was the Breda Prison Dome, which was an actual prison that was retired and turned into an event venue. (laughs) What was the story there? Because this is sort of like the stock exchange and this church, all of these different historic sites that keep coming up and being locations for experiences is that the experience where they have 40 different actors and we're like inmates trying to escape from this prison yeah there's a few hundred players and i think like 50 actors and a few hundred players 50 actors 400 and- <laughs> players i think yeah maybe we'll talk a little bit about that during the uh, patreon bonus episode because i have some funny stories from my experience of playing that game we love to yeah <laughs> yeah Similar kind of story. In the Netherlands, less and less people are being put in prisons. A lot of prisons became redundant. And the prison dome was one of those. I mean, it like, could never be us. Everything he's saying is like so wild. He's <laughs> American. Like, could you imagine? Like, we just don't even need these jails anymore. We don't have enough people to put in them. Definitely. Dutch people are being put into prisons much less. They have better resocialization programs nowadays. Due to this, something like the prison escape is possible. And also, I guess due to this, something like the prison escape can be approached in a, in a maybe more lighthearted manner than it could be approached in the US, where I think the prison system is a real uh, tragedy. Yeah, it is not politically loaded in the Netherlands in the same way that it certainly is in the United States. I see that you teach gamification. And personally, I always try to gamify everything in my life because, well, games are fun and I want to make boring tasks as fun as possible. Can you explain what the concept of gamification is? I think it's one of those things that people think they know what it means, but maybe the reality is a little bit different. Yeah, it's a a pretty controversial concept by now. And it's also interesting. Gamification in its beginnings was basically how can we use elements that are very motivating for people in games and apply them in other non-game related environments. And the thing here is why this became a very uh, controversial topic is because there's a deep way of doing it and there's a very shallow way of doing it. (laughs) And in the same way that there's very shallow games, 
with very simple hooks that are just made to make you uh, like addicted to them maybe or put you in a mindset of like mindlessly killing your time you can use those mechanics also and apply that in other settings so you can imagine like someone taking elements from like a, a dungeon crawler and trying to uh, implement them in someone else's uh, job environment you can debate if this is an ethical use of the tool in the same way that you can debate if those games using those tools are actually ethical there's this book here somewhere about addiction by design which talks all about the tools that are being used in slot machines and how these games are being optimized you could imagine using many of those tools and use them in other fields but that's the dark side of gamification if you see it like i, I was teaching gamification i think for two years i was first teaching game design then gamification and the next year i was teaching science of well-being you know there's a progression here you know there's so many overlapping elements but go more and more deeper into this is like the question like what does it help to live a meaningful life and why are there certain things that we consider in games that give us like this passion and this meaning and this enthusiasm and how can we frame our world to either recognize them in other parts or to frame it in other parts like this to get people curious and excited about them i have a series of apps on my phone one is like working out. So if you like mark that you worked out and you did these things, I don't know, you get some gold for your character and you can use that gold to run an RPG. Or I have apps where I put down tasks and as I do the tasks, I mark them completed and then a little town will grow. So you mentioned before, you said that you think that there's a shallow way of doing it and there's a deeper way of doing it. So is that considered like a shallow way of gamifying? My personal view on those things is like, if it actually helps you to connect with the actual activity, instead of just distracting you from the activity, I would consider it meaningful. So we can say, okay, every time you go running, you build up this town. And then your main focus becomes to build this town. Well, I think probably it would be better to create something that helps you to connect with the reason why you're running and what you get out of running and make you mindful about the running and not make the running a tool to fulfill another virtual purpose. Sometimes I really feel like we're having a bit of a maybe spiritual crisis in the sense that we're creating all these virtual worlds to escape from like the very real problems that we have. We shouldn't try to flee into virtual worlds. This is antithetical to everything I believe in. <laughs> All I want to do is flee into a fantasy world. Maybe if instead of every time I went running, there was like an image of me and I progressively got like skinnier and skinnier or something like yeah. maybe that would inspire me to connect more with running. I mean, I had a bit of a moment where I was questioning a lot of the work that I was doing a few weeks ago when I was doing a training to become a nature guide. And we were in the wild in the south of Spain, tracking animals and interpreting nature. And it was fascinating. It was amazing. This was an experience that didn't need to be gamified for me because it felt really immersive. But the shocking moment was for me when I was in the woods collecting uh, things and I remembered playing a video game in which I was doing the same thing. And I thought like, <laughs> oh, wow. So actually like the, I'm doing the real thing now, but I, my memory, my association is the virtual activity that I had more often and I have much more memories and associations with. And this moment was for me so shocking because then I started to realize at the same time, we are in an environment that is heavily threatened and with a lot of ecological problems. And I don't really connect with it as much because I go home and engage with my virtual environment, which is increasingly getting better. My video games are getting better. All these games that I'm playing and all these tools and gadgets that I have are continuously getting better and making me feel like there's a progression. But if I go actually in the real world out there in the wild, things are continuously going worse. And this was for me a moment where I was like, okay, there's something really deeply problematic here. 
and made me steering me a bit away from the concept of escapism. I get that a little bit. I remember when I went to Angkor Wat in Cambodia and I could not get over this overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, this is just like the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. And that's, you know, <laughs> that, that association. And I'm like, but that ride is based on this actual location that I'm in. Yes. I'd never been there and I'd been on Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland many times. So it, there was a weird dissonance with that, went into a bit of a, an existential tailspin, just like you did probably with thinking mm -hmm. like, what's wrong with me that this is the real thing. But all I can think about is that ride at Disneyland. <laughs> I had a very similar experience in Venice, Italy, where I remember walking through the city and thinking, this feels like a Counter-Strike map. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it, I, I remember this map as well. It's a little Italy, was it, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not as easy as shallow or deep gamification, but I think, yeah. Also, that's what I like about escapements is that, to me, it opens up your imagination and it opens up your creativity when you play it. I remember like I was playing with one of my girlfriends back then. It sounds like I have a lot of girlfriends. So now she's an ex-girlfriend, but like playing with her escape rooms, introducing her to it. And when she came back and she were in this house and she was like, it's incredible. Now constantly behind every door, I imagine there could be like something secret, something fantastic hidden, but we were in the real world. So it's not that we were like escaping in some sort of fantasy, but just what happened is she was more aware and excited about being in this physical space and being in the real world, be more curious about your surrounding because yeah, mysteries could be hidden everywhere. And as a matter of fact, mysteries are hidden everywhere in our world. This is actually what excites me about escape rooms. It's what made me realize I was doing that when I went scuba diving. And part of what you do when you scuba dive is I'm trying to find interesting animals. And a lot of mm -hmm. times they're hidden under rocks, they're camouflaged. And I was like, why am I so good at searching when I'm scuba diving? And I'm so bad at it in escape rooms. But that's part of what I love about scuba diving is that feeling of, oh, I found something. Like I discovered this lionfish. Yes, yes. And everything that helps you to get into this mindset of curiosity about the world, I think is a great thing. taking a moment to thank our sponsor, the World Escape Room Championship, a global competition for escape room players. This year, it is happening virtually, so everyone can compete for free. The elimination round is happening on the 5th of November, and the top 100 teams will go on to compete in the grand finale on the 26th of November. This year's winners each receive a Nintendo Switch Lite. So David, you know, I'm always trying to get an edge, get a leg up on my competition. Thought it was really cool that one of the ways you could do it is by playing the games from past competitions. They have those available online so you can go on and see how their past games have run. And that'll kind of give you a head start on the competition this year. David, do you have any other tips or tricks? Yeah, a bunch of things come to mind. First thing, the competition is in English and in Polish. If you really want to optimize your team, make sure you have at least one or two people on the team who are really comfortable reading English quickly. The second thing, they are allowing you to have teams of two to four people, but really you want to maximize that. You want a team of four people. You want to bring a full roster and you want to make sure that your team has some diverse skills and that every single person on it is a team player. You don't need any lone wolves. You need people who are going to move as a unit because if you win or lose, it's happening as a unit. 
Gather your team of two to four competitors. You must each create your own accounts on the ERChamp website. Whether you're in it for fun or you're in it to win it, I wish you luck. You can learn more at erchamp.com. Details in the show notes. One of the things we're doing with all of our guests this season is we're asking them to spread the love around their country a little bit. So what are some of your current favorite games in the Netherlands that you didn't create? And I know asking you this question, you were spoiled for choice. There is no shortage of phenomenal escape rooms across the Netherlands. Yeah, it might be shocking for you guys how few games I've played in the last two years. I think the first time I've played an escape room in like maybe five months was actually with the PG <laughs> when you were here. So the things like, I know of a lot of fantastic games out there that, that I haven't really personally played yet. I only played Molly's game a few months ago, uh, which is a game that yeah everybody else internationally already knows. I, love I it. haven't played it. It's also maybe a bit of answering a slightly different question, very political here, is that uh, I would recommend everybody to keep an eye out for a game that will open up very soon that is made by a company called Entered. And they previously made a game called I Can Hear You. And I Can Hear You did by far not get the amount of international attention that I think it should have gotten. I have not heard of it. Yeah, that's uh, tragic because the makers decided very consciously to not promote it too much in the escape room world because they felt like they don't want people to come and expect an escape room and then be disappointed. I think they underestimated how much people in the escape room world also really were interested in slightly different and adjacent experiences. Yeah, I have seen a number of creators make that mistake. So it's really like, uh, this game was fantastic. It was a horror experience with one of the main game mechanics that you would have to hide from a blind person, which is now a mechanic that I have been seen in many different other games as well. But the way they did it with the focus, the, the really narrowing it down to this mechanic was incredible. And the gameplay elements that they introduced with it were so good. The focus of design was so well done in this experience that uh, it's still one of my favorites. This is the game in Belgium. There's a problem. This game doesn't exist anymore. It's closed by now, but the same guys, they are going to release a game soon. It's called Demise of the Grisers. Grisers is a slang word for train uh, fanatics. Ah, okay, uh, okay. (laughs) And the the company is called Entered. It's not going to be an escape room, but I'm pretty sure that if you like escape rooms, you will like this because it's a real life game with completely unique mechanics, actors in it as well, and incredible world building. Belgium is not really on the map a lot. Yeah, and I'm committing to this now. Over the next few seasons, we're going to try and get many more creators from the Netherlands on the show. It's been something we've been aware that we need to do, and we love all these people. So we will be exploring this region much more over the coming seasons. Nice. So Alexander, what comes next for you? We've done a lot of commissions in the last years, and like one commission that might maybe work out as like a collaboration with the Marriott, which uh, we've been working with on the... um, Like Marriott Hotels? Yes, we were planning to make a big uh, experience in one of the hotels here in Amsterdam, which uh, got magically available due to like uh, a massive reduction in tourism. Somebody in the Marriott loves escape rooms. Yeah, well, we just had a review published by Matthew Stein, and at this point it's a couple months ago, of the TED escape room in the Marriott in san francisco all right if you are that person at marriott that keeps approving (laughs) these escape room collaborations please contact us because we we would love to talk to you because somebody there loves escape rooms i wish you would have done what they did because what uh, the mistake that we did we were like we were asked like don't you want to make an escape room for the hotel there's a a lot of empty space we're like okay 
yeah, maybe this room or that room, we can pick any of these rooms. Which rooms can we pick from? Oh, they're all empty. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And then I was like, what do you mean? There's four floors of empty hotel rooms and you don't have any idea what to do with them right now. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So I called the people I was very excited to work with and we were trying to make an immersive real life game for four hotels floors with like a whole lot of different actors. And yeah, it was a project we were working on for like for nine months, I think. And um, then the lockdown came and after the lockdown, we expected that maybe there would be a loosening of the measures, but there was pretty much no loosening of the measures. The lockdown lasted till the very last moment. And then when things opened, everything opened like full on. And there was no intermediate era where something like this could have been possible. So this experience never, never happened, unfortunately. But we're still seeing if we can harvest some of the elements from there and see if we can bring it somewhere. And at the same time, we want to do, again, another horror experience, very likely in the space where we have currently the Secrets of Eliza's Heart and whose time is limited because we want to eventually uh, use the entire space for one new big experience. I can't wait to play it. Where can people find you on social media? I'm not so into social media. Shoot me an email if you want to be in touch. My email is alexander at logiclogs.com. Yeah, if you follow us on logiclogs, you can also see some of the things we're posting Everything I do work-related, I usually put there. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited that you are moving forward with Recon. And as I said, once you, I think you're the perfect people to do this. And I'm very excited that you are doing it. Thank you. And we hope to have you out to speak at some point once international travel becomes a little less chaotic. Yeah. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. This podcast is supported by a Patreon. If you've been enjoying our content, we would really appreciate if you became a patron. We have a really robust community. That's my favorite part of the Patreon are the discussions in the Discord channel. And David and I have also recorded bonus episodes. These are usually recorded right after our main episode. And these are more casual conversations about the escape room industry at large. For our higher level backers, we also have a spoilers club. This is where we interview renowned creators of phenomenal games from all over the world. And we have the deep dive spoiler conversation that everyone wishes they could have at the bar with the creator of the game after they played it. Recently, we have interviewed the creators of Lost Island of the Voodoo Queen at Escapearium in Montreal, Catacombs from Logic Locks in Amsterdam, Hope End from Ministry of Peculiarities in Los Angeles, and Storyteller's Secret from Boxeroo in Boston. The conversations are really interesting, and we learned a lot about these games that we loved while talking about them. None of this is available on the open internet, though, because spoilers are sort of a problem for our community, so they are only available for people who are backing at the $15 level or more. If you can afford it, the conversations are great. We'd like to take a moment to thank our highest tier sponsors, Derek Tam, Breakout Games, Jonathan Driscoll, 
Pat Tupin, Rex Miller, Paula Swan, Scott Olson, and Byron Delmonico. If you've been enjoying our show, please consider doing any one of the following things. Share it with a friend, or give us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. The more that we can get our content out there into the world, the more we can share our love of escape rooms and immersive gaming. We were having treasure hunt through the city for big groups, and um, our concept was that people would meet different characters in different parts of the city. And uh, I was playing a character that was waiting in a bar. I was a double agent with multiple personality disorder. They had to interrogate me, and it would have been a very difficult interrogation because I was working for two agencies at the same time while being uh, confused about who my actual personality is. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was like hiding in like the, the dark corner of a, a bar that I had scouted out nicely and thought like it would be the perfect spot. Usually it wasn't very busy. What I didn't see coming is that the neighboring pub was a very popular football pub. And during the time, just before the game, before my group should arrive, they had a problem with their electricity. And so they sent all the football fans to the other pub, which I was in, to watch the game there. So from an empty pub with like maybe three people, in five minutes, this pub filled up with like maybe 200 screaming drunken football fans who were just like everywhere. And I was like, yeah, that was probably the most uh, freaked out you had me seen like uh, organizing any kind of game so far. 